A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm here with Mike Rhodes, CEO of WebSavvy. And we're going to be talking about how to capitalize on near future paid advertising trends. So I know this for you, Mike, is an area that's close to your heart, keeping an eye on near future trends. You've written the book, The Ultimate Guide to Google Ads, with its sixth revision quite recently. And so maybe we'll cover some aspects of Google Ads and recent trends and developments in Google Ads and what people should be looking out for the future too. And before we get into all of that, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. G'day. Uh, Mike Rhodes. I'm coming at you from Melbourne, Australia these days. I grew up in the UK, left around 20 years ago, met the right girl finally, and uh, she was living in Adelaide. I didn't want to retire and move to Adelaide. So we uh, we met in the middle. I was in Sydney at the time and we now are in Melbourne, I've got two beautiful daughters at home waiting for me to get home so they can say goodnight. Um, my nine-year-old, who I feels like was born two weeks ago, turns 10 tomorrow. So got a lovely day planned for her and her little sister just turned seven. So that's really who I am at heart. I'm, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, and I guess I'm a massive data geek as well. I've been doing Google Ads for 17 years. I love the business of business. I love growing businesses. And when I first discovered Google Ads, Google AdWords back then in 2004, it was like, this is it. This is this is the tool that's going to help all of these businesses that I love working with to get more customers, to get more people in the door, to grow, to serve more people. And yeah, started the agency fairly soon after that. So Web Savvy is the done for you part. That's the agency side. I have a sister business called Agency Savvy is where we teach, basically teach the competition. Uh, we teach hundreds of agencies, I mean, marketing managers, businesses, how to do what we do, uh, which is run Google Ads better, run Facebook ads, and all of the sort of the, the tools around that and the Google universe. So Google Shopping, YouTube ads, Google Analytics and Data Studio, all that fun stuff, all the geeky stuff to get more people to your business and help you profit from that. So I was thinking... When I started out in agency life, people had the assumption that the UK, the US, and I think Japan and parts of Asia were quite far ahead in terms of marketing and technology development. And actually, I remember it being discussed at Australia when people discussed Australian marketing back then. This is maybe a decade ago. People were saying, oh, they're a year or two behind out there. And so it's an easier life marketing out there. And I just want to know from your perspective whether you've seen that perception that I'm discussing there and actually whether there's any truth to it at all. Oh, that absolutely used to be. Yeah, I, I used to talk about that to my clients a decade ago and say, mm-hmm. look, this is easy. 
we just need to look at what's happening in the States, in London, right. and and then go apply that. And we'll be two or three years ahead of most of your competitors. But I do think that gap has closed significantly. There may be a, a, a slight gap there these days, but I think most businesses in Oz are very sophisticated now, as sophisticated as their American and British counterparts. And I think that gap has definitely closed. I can't really speak to many other countries. Um, I typically speak in in the US and Australia, or at least I used to back when we could travel and stuff. Um, and most of our clients are pretty evenly split between Australia and the US. We have a few in the UK, Scotland, but not too many because the time zone really just doesn't make it very friendly. And I really don't like asking my team to get up at 7am or or, or be on a call at, at 6 p.m. Um, they'll do it occasionally, but I don't like uh, having to ask for that. So, uh, yeah, mostly US and Australia based. And they are different markets, definitely, mm. in terms of different audiences. You need to change the way you talk to those audiences. But in terms of sophistication, pretty, pretty even these days. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for, actually. Marketing sophistication levels and that range. It's interesting. I didn't know back then a decade ago whether to take it as arrogance or yeah, whether there was any truth to it. But in my mind, as time has gone on over this last decade, and we've seen the development of e-learning platforms and YouTube and just the access to information, it already was easy 10 years ago. But I see no need for there to be the sophistication levels to be different depending on your country, apart from education and basic levels exactly of education. Right. The, yeah. the world's a small place. The world is flat and mm. we all have access to the same information. So yeah, why would there be a difference? Mm. And I've really seen that over the past 12 months, the the sophistication level of the marketing managers that we deal with, I, I feel has really increased. It went back when I started, if you could spell AdWords, that was enough to win a client people had never heard of it and the whole idea of what do you mean we're only going to show ads to people that are searching for the stuff that we have to sell hang on a minute and we only pay if and when they click on that little ad that that's ridiculous like i'm spending all of this money on radio and letterbox drops and yellow pages that sounds too good to be true so things have definitely definitely changed i just had a, a, a great strategy call with a client just before and we were talking about so many different areas around the business, you know, the email marketing, CRO, BigQuery, one of Google's fabulous data tools, um, some of the changes that are coming around iOS and Google's flock. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that, but yeah, they were asking such good questions around this array of different topics. I just, yeah, it's, it's a lot more fun having those more advanced conversations and more and more I'm finding that marketing managers want to talk about the future. It used to be very backwards looking, very historical. Okay, what's happened? Why? What can we learn from that? These days, I'm finding more and more our clients want to talk about predictive analytics. What's going to happen? What do you predict will happen? If we spend an extra 100 grand this month, what's likely to happen to Rev, to our ROI, to lifetime value from that new cohort? You know, they're much bigger, meatier conversations than we were having five years ago. Yeah, we'll get into all of that. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to hold that thought for just a moment because there's one question just as you were talking there and you were talking about tra- uh, travel to the US and you were talking about speaking mm. and then you said, well, not mm. so much over this last year. So I'm, I'm assuming like everyone else, the pandemic has impacted you in the way that speaking gigs aren't going ahead and you've not been doing as right. much, if any of that at all, over this last year. And I'm just curious to know 
My assumption is that when you go to those speaking gigs, you typically have those Q&A sessions or just through networking, you get lots of questions coming your way. And to Mm. time it back within the episode title, that means that you're quite alert to, you're getting that feedback loop from people. You've got your finger on the pole of trends and what people are interested in because they're coming to you with those questions regularly. Do you look at identifying and capitalizing on near future trends differently to what you did a year ago? How has your process changed? That's a really good question. So yes, I, I, I love going and speaking. I love travel. I hate being away from my girls, but I love traveling. But I'm very, very lucky in that I didn't do it a lot. I would do maybe four trips a year to the States, maybe one to the UK. Um, I travel in comfort, have a lovely time. Oh, yeah, another glass of dessert wine, please. And some of those chocolates. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was really, really lovely. And I'm incredibly lucky to have done that. I don't know when I'm going to get on a plane again next. I haven't been on a plane for over a year and I don't think I could say that for the last 20 years. And I'm very aware, even as I say that, what a privileged white male I sound like. There are people still suffering massively. We are incredibly lucky in our industry that this is something that you can do from home. I personally, even though my folks are in the UK, haven't been massively impacted. I mean, some of my team members, particularly some team members with family members back home in India, one of our team members in the Philippines uh, who's got COVID currently. But for the most part, we haven't been impacted by it. Obviously, here in Australia, it's a very, very different pandemic to most of the rest of the world. So maybe it doesn't need to be said, but I feel like I need to say that. I recognize that while it sounds like all oh, sunshine and roses over here, I realize that we are incredibly lucky to be in that position. To answer your question, finally... I'm incredibly lucky in the agency savvy group that I lead. And I've got a few hundred marketers in there. Some are absolute newbies to the world of Google Ads. I've also got some of the absolute best in the world at what they do. Guys like Chris Mercer, who's one of the best data guys I know. Guys like Tom Breeze from your part of the world, who's one of the best YouTube marketers on the planet. He, I call him the Ogilvy of YouTube. The guy is an absolute genius. And they are not only members of Agency Sevy, but they also provide content and training for our members. And so one of the reasons I set that up was it's a bunch of selfish reasons, but also to keep me on my toes, to, to get those questions, to see those trends, to be asked the hard questions on a daily basis, because that is where I get a lot of the ideas for content, for talks. I'm able to test out ideas. We had a, a Q&A call at 7 a.m. this morning at the other end of my day with some of the members. We do that every month and they ask great questions. Yeah, they're on the cutting edge of all of this stuff and bringing articles to me and ideas and we, and we bounce that stuff around. So I'm very, very lucky in that regard. To answer the second part of your question, how has the process changed? It has in a way because yes, not doing the speaking thing. Very, very glad that I never made my living. As a speaker, I've got friends that are professional speakers that had a hundred gigs lined up and that all just stopped from one week to the next. So for me, it's always been a luxury that I get to travel and go do that. So I don't think the process has changed, but I've probably spent more time thinking about the near future than ever before because we've basically had you know, a decade of changes in the past 12 months. Everything has been accelerated. A lot of those future trends have been brought forward. So it is a bit of a recasting of those ideas of stuff that you thought, oh, we don't need to worry about that yet. That can wait. Or maybe we do need to think about that 
sooner than we thought. And because that trend has accelerated, what might come next? And how have our audience changed? How have our consumers changed? What other things did we think we didn't have to worry about for a long time? Now might be 2022 or 2023 things, whereas before maybe they we weren't really going to worry about that for a decade. So it, it's changed. It probably has brought more focus to bear on that. So I think, yeah, the, the title of your episode is very apt and very relevant to lots of small businesses and agencies. And it also applies to your book. And I'm thinking through as you're mm. talking that I really want to get into detail a little bit more about your book and the trends in the book that you cover and mm. I guess just to start off, so I mentioned that you're in the six, you're on the sixth edition of that book, and that yeah. was released in November 2020. So where are we now? Six months ago, roughly five six months ago, as we're recording yep. this episode. And I really just want to know a little bit more about that process that you go through. Six revisions is quite a commitment to, and <laughs> also in the world of Google Ads, I think I'm curious to understand how do you decide what to include in the book, what you maybe want to include but doesn't quite make the final cuts and then also there must fit, there must be a, a strange pressure as you're creating the content for the revisions knowing that google ads is constantly advancing oh. and so you kind of want to get it out for release but you don't want to miss the next thing so maybe if you could speak on that journey for me oh so i got involved in the fourth edition so perry and brian had already created the first three yeah. editions when they asked me to, to add the technical piece for the fourth edition, which I started writing back in 2013. Mm -hmm. And exactly what you just said, we submitted the manuscript to Entrepreneur Press. And a week later, Google made this massive change. If old timers may remember, converted clicks mm -hmm. um, was a metric that we used to have. And Google made this huge change around the way that conversions were being measured in AdWords, as it was called back then. And we had to get the manuscript back. I had to rewrite three chapters a week later resubmit that, phew, okay, all good. And then, of course, two months later, another massive change. And it's too late to pull that back. And then another two months later, another huge change. And you're writing the book. Um, I was That was happening in sort of March, April time, and the book was released October, November time. So you're submitting that manuscript six months fully wow. before the book hits the shelves. And you know there's going to be a bunch of changes in there, as you've just alluded to. That was really the moment when Agency Savvy was formed in my mind. I had been teaching classes on Google Ads for a while. I'd put out some, um, I've still got some here in the corner of the office, you know, some bubble wrap, huge things with DVDs inside and um, workbooks and all this sort of stuff. But that was the moment where I went, I need to have a membership site that has the most up-to-date training on Google Ads in the world that's always up-to-date so that when Google do bring out some big new change, we can record a video on it, do some training on it, switch that video out for that old one, get rid of the old stuff and, and keep this stuff up to date. I will admit that's um, probably a little bit aspirational still because it changes so fast and just, you know, the day-to-day -day of running an agency sometimes gets in the way of that. I, it, it's not a full-time gig by any means. That It's a... It's a, a Labor of love, I guess you would call it. I love teaching along the way. I've discovered I'm a, a teacher at heart and I love the, the training side of things, but I don't get as much time as I would like to keep those videos coming out. I try and create two new courses every quarter. I'm pretty good at keeping to that. And then we have a guest come in and, and create a course for us as well each quarter. So there's a new course coming out every month, which is a lot, um, but Google changes fast. 
as you know. How do I go about thinking about what's in there? Um, I don't know if you've ever read Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Chef. Great book, big, thick book, 600-odd pages. At the beginning of that book, he basically makes a confession. This is a book about learning disguised as a cookbook. And he shares his dis method of learning or teaching at the beginning of that book. And D-S-S-S. And essentially, or not remembering exactly what all of that stands for, I think D is deconstruction. So what are all the Lego pieces that we have to play with? So when it comes to Google Ads, that's easy. I can lay out all of those Lego pieces. The first two S's then are on me. It's the selection and the sequencing of those in order to teach this as effectively as possible. What's the 80-20 of all of the things that we could talk about? What's the 20% that's going to get the reader 80% of the way there? And then, yes, we think very, very carefully about the order that those pieces need to go in so that as you work your way through the book, you're building on that knowledge. And the longer I've taught it, I actually try and keep people away from the Google Ads interface for as long as possible. So here's a grab a spreadsheet, grab a pen and paper, grab a whiteboard, and let's sort of work through these things, do a bit of research, see what your competitors are doing. So we start sort of talking about messaging and then okay, who do you want to show this ad to? Now let's talk about targeting. Now let's talk about doing all of that profitably. So that's bidding. And those are the three main levers within any advertising, certainly within Google Ads. And then the whole thing obviously is built on data. And then once we've got all of those Lego pieces, uh, we've started thinking about what those Lego pieces are for our own business, for our own marketing campaign. Then we can go open up an account log in, get thoroughly confused by all the bells and whistles that are in there. But now we've got a, a use case. We've got a purpose in mind. We've done the hard work. We've got a collection of all of these assets, all of these Lego pieces. Now we just have to plug them into the right place. And that seems to have worked. I'm probably not the best person to ask, but that seems to have worked from the feedback I've gotten. It seems to work quite well. And yeah, this book was a Massive rewrite. Between fourth and fifth edition, it wasn't quite as massive. This time, it was probably 80% new content. We basically had to throw away the, the manuscript from the fifth edition and start again, which was mm. quite a big job. <laughs> and um, I have so many questions after what you've just said. I'm going to have to try and keep them all in mind. That's always my challenge is that these questions flush oh, through my mind it. and then I can never remember them all. But I just, um, I'm just i interested to know, um, the. do you think you'll be in part of the seventh edition when that happens? And do you have like a timeline for that? Or do you just does that just come naturally as you're working through and Google are making these bigger changes to Google Ads and there are bigger trends in the industry? I kind of defer to Perry and Brian on that. They've right, had right. the relationship with Entrepreneur Press much longer than me. Mm. Um, we have typically done it on a sort of about a three-year cycle because by that point, we know that we've got lots of new things to talk about. We know that if you're still doing things the way you were doing it three years ago, you're probably not doing it right and you're probably getting hurt by that. Mm. Um, entrepreneur press need to know that there's a big enough difference in that, you know, for them, obviously there's a commercial reality and there needs to be a big enough change between books so that they can actually shift copies of the book and sell units and be able to sell that to their distributor that there is a need for this new book. Obviously I don't get involved in that part at all, but yeah, I, look, I absolutely love working with Perry and Brian. Brian does all of the, the editing piece and he's an absolute fabulous person to work alongside. So if they'll have me, I'll be around for the seventh edition. I'm sure it will be needed in uh, another couple of years. And I want to go into some of those trends that you were thinking about recently when that book mm. was being updated. But 
before I do, you touched on something that was really interesting to me. And that was, you talked about that whole process just before people even think of getting started or re-strategizing in Google Ads or trying to capitalize on these trends or the new features and functionality. There's a whole strategic process, a planning process that you should go through first. And I still feel like more often than not, that process for paid media marketers is underappreciated. As in that part takes time. And I sometimes see prospects or clients that come to work with us lose a little bit of patience in that area Mm -hmm. because, you know, there's this perception that Google Ads is this thing that you just, you plug your money into and you get started straight away. I'm just curious to know whether you see that. I know it varies from business to business and person to person, but more generally speaking, do you still see that as an issue? Well, there's a few things in there to unpack. Um, (laughs) One is, yes, it is very easy to get started. It's very hard to master. Also, the huge difference between now and say five and certainly between now and 10 years ago, now everybody thinks they can do Google Ads. So you go get your new website built and your web designer goes, oh yeah, now we can build a Google Ads account. And they can. Literally speaking, they can go and create a Google Ads account. It won't do very well. It won't get you near the ROI that a a professional would be able to get for your business. But you're up and running. You don't know any different because... Why should you? You're a business owner. You're running around, but you've got 12 other hats that you need to wear. And looking over the shoulder of this provider is just doesn't even rank a mention in your weekly plan. So you just trust them. And then somebody comes along a year later and doesn't audit every account and puts their hands in the air and goes, oh, what the hell are you doing? This is all wrong. We can do it better. So you switch agencies and then they're useless and they've overpromised and then they rip you off. And there are so many bloody sharks in this industry, sadly. And I guess, I don't know, maybe that's true of lots of industries, right? It's probably true in real estate and insurance and, and loads of other markets. But sadly, there are there's, there's no regulation. That's something that we are trying to change. We've started having discussions with the small business minister here in Australia. Like we, we want to get some regulation into this industry. I think it's massively needed and, and way over time to have that because somebody will go and do a course on Facebook ads for the weekend and then hang their shingle out on Monday morning and go, oh, I'm a social media expert. And it's ridiculous. But the typical small business owner and again, she shouldn't have to try and choose how to choose an agency. She doesn't know. That's not what she does day in, day out. How the hell do you do you buy? How do you help? Do you know who's a good agency and who, who's not? So that, that is a, a, a problem. So it's how you set expectations at the beginning. I mean, a huge, huge part of this game, you know, you run an agency. It, it, it's all expectation management. And yeah, sure. That means that there are clients that we haven't won along the way because we've told them, look, the, the setup and build of this and particularly the tracking side is the bit that often gets overlooked. And this is going to take two to four weeks. What? Why can't you start tomorrow? Well, no one. We're busy with existing clients. So to give you the best results, we will onboard you in three weeks time, four weeks time, whatever it is. And some people just do not want to wait, but that's great. That's a really good red flag for us. If they're Mm -hmm. that impatient at the start, we don't want to work with them ongoing because they're going to be a pain in the ass client. And I think it's, yeah, expectation setting and and just keeping them informed. It's really, really simple, basic business 101, but talking to them along the way, this is what's happening this week. This is where we're up to. Um, We've run into some problems with your developer. We've given them everything that they need to do to put the code in place it enabled tracking, but they've told us that there's a backlog of four weeks and 
they might not get to it. If you can give them a nudge for us and help, you know, bring that up their to-do list, we'll be able to get started on that because we don't want to start spending your money if we can't track the return on that investment. The other thing where we're very lucky is most of our clients, when they come to us, they're already spending on Google Ads. So it's very rare that somebody will start working with someone who's never run Google Ads before. Typically, they'll come to us, they're already spending you know, 10 grand a month, 50 grand a month, 200 grand a month, whatever it is. They just know that the results could be better. They want someone else to, to start by just having a second pair of eyes over it and have a look at it. Give me an honest opinion of what you see here. I did an audit last week. I went back to the guys and I said, I would give this an A minus. Whoever's running it for you, they're doing a bang up job. Don't come to us. Keep doing what you're doing. They're doing a great job. There's a few little quibbles in there. There's a few things that we would change, but nothing major. Great. Carry on. And then there's other times where you look in there and often it's actually the bigger spenders that are the worst offenders, bizarrely. And you look at it and you think, how the hell has someone even set it up this way? How could somebody that set something up this badly have won a client mm. that's spending this amount of money? It's mind-boggling. So yeah, it's a really, really mixed bag, but I think it just it comes back to communication and also not using jargon to confuse that full small business owner to, to make it sound like you're more important or it's it's harder and more specialized and, and they wouldn't understand it. So I'm just going to like use big words and scary acronyms. That's, that's horrible. Business owners hate that. Marketing managers hate that. Tell me what I need to know in simple terms, but not too simple, but simple terms so that I know what you're doing so I can hold you as an agency accountable and so I can manage up internally, whether that's up to my managers, up to my board, to my spouse, to my business partners. Like I need to explain to other people why we're spending 50 grand a month on this thing that they don't understand. And I need to be able to explain that to people. So please don't use jargon and, and make me sound like an idiot. You just, you're trying to confuse me. Nobody likes that. No. We want to feel smart. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the two words that came to mind are communication, which is, I know, I appreciate that's quite broad, but it's, I guess it's the clarity of communication. And then, like mm. you said, closely tied with that is expectation management. If you focus on those two things, like you said, you can be really conscious of the red flags. And I know not every agency or every business is in the position to do this, but working towards the goal of using those red flags to identify business to qualify out is probably the best answer to that question. It's a really good point. And, and I would push back a little bit that every agency should do that. Even mm. if you're just starting out, I know it's very, I was there. I know it's tempting to chase that revenue, but it won't be profitable. And you'll end up burning the client and yourself. You may end up burning your reputation, which is a very, very bad thing to do. And being very clear on the type of clients that you want, who you want to work with. And I think at the beginning, that can often be quite gray. And you're like, well, it's easy for you to say, Mike, you've been doing this 16 years and you're much clearer on who you want to work with and who you don't because of that experience. And yes, how you get experience is by screwing up making mistakes, falling on your face. I tell my daughters that every week. That's Hey, that that's a really good mistake because we just learned from that and we're going to get better because of that. But there's also some clients that you know in your heart of hearts, you know in your gut, you shouldn't be taking them on. The red flags are so glaring at the beginning, but I see a lot of young agencies starting out 
try and pretend that they haven't seen those red flags and take that client on anyway. And it almost always ends yeah, in Yeah, that's pain. really interesting. Yeah, no, I've seen that same thing too. Sorry, you cut out for a moment there. I didn't mean to talk over you. But um, yeah, you, uh, I've seen that same thing too. It's the it's the ability early on to not ignore it and to address those things head on that set a good habit for the future of your yes. agency or of your business. And, and you're right, addressing it and not just sweeping it under the rug or, or not just saying, no, sorry, can't help you. But yeah, mm. back to your point, communication, clear mm. communication. Let's have it out. Let's talk about why we think it isn't a good fit because maybe they'll turn around and go, oh, oh no, we can change that thing. Don't worry. We can, yeah. You just don't know until you talk about it. I want to segue back into mm. some of the trends that you're seeing in, in Google sure. Ads and, and what were some of the biggest additions that you wanted to set marketers up for? the next few years for the future, what do you think that marketers mm. should be paying attention to? I appreciate that you won't be able to go into granular detail. And so for that, I'm obviously going to recommend people purchase the book, but maybe an overview of the things that you're paying attention to and that you featured in the book. Cool. Okay. Um, I haven't done a word count on this, but I would imagine the word smart is mentioned in the book <laughs> a lot. So over the past three years or so, Google have increasingly been pushing their, and I'm going to use air quotes here, even though you can't see it, but their <laughs> smart technology. Because the joke in the industry used to be, whenever you hear Google say smart, insert the words not so in front of that. Not so smart bidding, not so smart display, not so smart shopping. That has changed quite a bit. You know, They quote a stat, which is actually, I, think, I believe, a stat from OpenAI, that the power of AI is doubling every 3.4 months. Now, that doesn't mean it's getting twice as good every four months, but the power of AI is on this upward trajectory. We used to talk about Moore's Law and you know computer power doubling every 18 to 24 months. Mm. The changes since about 2012 in AI. So that's been the biggest change. Google obviously is an AI company at its core. They are probably the biggest users of AI in the world, certainly outside of China, they, they would be. There's, a, there's only a few companies in the world that really, really do AI very, very well. And yet they had to be persuaded. You know, um, Andrew Ng, the smartest bloke you've never heard of, the founder of Coursera, which just went public, he had to persuade the guys at Google back in 2011 that machine learning was the future for them and had to do, you know, like mm-hmm. pilot studies within the business. A translation was one of those and showed them the massive impact that machine learning could have. And that's where I think the light bulbs went on internally. And obviously, they've invested very, very heavily ever since. They bought a a British company, DeepMind, uh, back in 2014 for about half a billion. They still lose about half a billion or more a year on that business because they're paying for the best AI talent in the world in Demis and his team. But that technology underpins a lot of this stuff inside the Google Ads system, certainly they're all of their smart bidding algorithms. So that's been the, the biggest change in a word, AI. But Google is also forcing this AI and forcing this automation onto us as Google Ads users, whether that's you as an agency or you as a business. We are having control taken away from us, which a lot of us hate because we're all control freaks. That's <laughs> one of the reasons we got into this and didn't do something like SEO we, we loved the instant feedback loop and it's very addictive of spending a dollar and seeing seven come back and spending a dollar and seeing seven come back and building what one of the greatest marketers for me, a guy called Dean Jackson out of the States, he sort of refers to this style of marketing 
as building a vending machine. Most marketing in most businesses is a slot machine. You put your money in, you pull the handle, you cross your fingers in your hope, and you don't know what's going to happen next. But a Google Ads account, and really any direct response marketing done well, you put your money in, you press the button, and you know what's going to come out, whether that's a Diet Coke or a Mars bar or a $10 note. And that's what a good AdWords account is. You put your dollar in, you press the button, you get $7 back or 15 or 23 mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But it's, it's repeatable. It's predictable. I love that about it. And that instant feedback loop does make it very, very addictive. Um, so that control is being taken away from us. The data is being taken away from us. That's another of these trends that we're seeing where we are getting less data back. And, oh, gosh, I could, I could go on a massive rant there. I don't know how deep we want to go into that. But that is a trend that's going to continue. I'm convinced. Google are basically saying, oh, look, this machine learning stuff, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult for you little humans to understand. You basically just have to lean into it and trust us. And I don't like just trusting a black box. Uh, Chris Mercer, who I mentioned before, has a great saying, trust but verify. It's okay mm. to trust, but I want some data. I want to be able to back that up. And so we're building you know, tools in our agency and giving tools to our agency savvy members that help them keep an eye on the AI. That, yeah, okay, we can trust it, but we need to monitor it. We need to see which bits of it are working or which bits aren't. And if needed, maybe find a workaround or be able to turn off one of these automatically applied uses that Google are rolling out more and more heavy-handedly across accounts. They're, they're introducing a lot of this stuff as the default on accounts. And some of it's great. Some of it's great and will grow accounts really, really well until it doesn't. Sometimes you'll see you know, performance get really, really good for three, four months and then drop off a cliff. That happens less these days. That was quite common a couple of years ago. Sometimes it'll ramp up campaigns beautifully. We had a client that was spending around about five grand a month prior to Black Friday last year. They're now spending about 400 grand a month. The performance really lifted in November, December, but it's also kept going. Now, the machine is getting so good at knowing who is going to click, who's going to convert, and being able to predict not just if they're going to convert, but how much they're likely to spend on your website when they convert. So if you say to the machine, you need to get me a 20x return, in other words, for every dollar I tip in, I need $20 of revenue coming back, give the machine enough time. Yes, you've got to manage that. You've got to nudge it in the right direction. There's stuff that you need to do. It's not tell the machine to do that and walk away for six months. You still need to manage things. You still need to understand how the machine works. But it is getting very, very good at being able to hit that target that you give to it. One of the other trends sort of adjacent to that, if I can jump straight into the next one, yeah, yeah, is Google really want you to focus on averages. I'm convinced of this. Um, I just had a call with one of our clients in Scotland just before I jumped on with you because it's the beginning of his day. He's just taking his dog for a walk and then we had a nice chat about his budgets and his results. I've got some numbers written in front of me here, actually, that I was jotting down before. He had 170 leads a month back in December. He's got 416 in March. So that's been a nice win. But looking at the incremental cost per conversion, you know, the, the machine is essentially nudging us on, on his behalf to spend 
more and more and more. It's the machine is basically, if you sort of know how to read the tea leaves in there, it's saying, Hey, look, you, you could up your spend from, I don't know what that campaign's on at the moment. Let's say from 10 grand to 15 grand to 20 grand. And look, you look, your average cost per lead, it only goes from 39 to $43. Don't worry about it. It seems so innocuous. It seems so easy, right? That average just went up a little bit. Surely that's good for the business. But we helped him sort of break down that data, pull it apart and and show it visually back to your communicate mm. clearly line from before. And we showed that if we were to do what the machine is suggesting and to spend that 20 grand, his incremental cost per lead would jump to about $190. So yeah, the average has gone from 39 to 42 or 46. I can't remember the exact numbers. But the incremental cost per lead for those last 15 leads was going to be almost $200 each, which is nowhere near profitable for his business. But that's the that's mm-hmm. the danger of just sort of trusting in the machine and, and not understanding how it works, how the AI works, but also the math behind that. I've gone really, really deep, as you alluded to before. The phrase that's coming AI. to mind for me is the as you talk through there, it's trust, uh, was it trust, but verify? Trust, but, trust but verify. Yeah. Yeah. And so where are mm. you at in that journey? I have had that many arguments with our reps <laughs> and management in Google because I've been relatively slow or slower than they would like, should we say, to adopt many of those features. Right. Because what's important for me, they'll, they'll try and sell it to me as, oh, but you could get rid of five of your team if you implemented all of these things. You could be so much more profitable, yada, yada, yada. Like, I don't care about that. I, I mean, yes, I want to be profitable. We're not a charity, but I love my team. They're awesome. They do amazing work. I don't want to replace them with robots that aren't proven. So, yeah, I have been slower than they would like to adopt that. We constantly test. And so that's a big part of, I guess, it's one of the benefits of why people join us at Agency Savvy is you get the benefits of our testing, but also a few hundred other marketers, again, some of whom are really cutting edge. And we're all talking about our experiments and our wins and our fails in that sort of safe place in that forum. So we're constantly testing. Do I blindly trust? Never. Um, am I more willing to use some of those smart features than I was three years ago? Definitely. But wherever we can, we are still going to verify. We're still going to monitor that. We're still going to be able to flip back to the manual way of doing things if and when we need to. And so I still teach it that way. I still teach that you really want to understand the fundamentals. You need to understand how things work at a base level before you flick the switch and allow Google to do it for you. One, so that you can understand what the machine's doing. That helps. But two, if things go wrong, you need to be able to grab hold of the steering wheel and take back control. You can't just allow the machine to slam into a wall. That's a really dangerous position to be in. So yes, we do use those smart features, some of them, a lot, lot more than we did, say, two years ago. There are still some that I'm not a fan of. There are some that we have turned off by default across all of our clients. There are some that we find funky workarounds too because Google don't make it easy, but we know that we're not going to get best results. And there are others that we absolutely lean into and embrace, but it's taken a while and it's 
taken getting to the point where we were really comfortable that the machine was almost certainly going to beat the human most of the time. That that example I gave you before of a client growing from 500 grand to hundreds of thousands, uh, sorry, from five grand a month to hundreds of thousands per month, a lot of that was down to um, us really embracing smart shopping and and setting smart shopping up in a way for that client that worked really well. It's not the way Google would tell you to set up smart shopping, but we knew that it was time to give the machine more control because of the client goals in that account. We knew we had to try and grow and we couldn't be as maybe conservative might be the right word as we had been in the past. So it's a real case by case basis. There isn't one that I can point to and say, oh, this one's great. Yes, you should use that. This one's awful. No, you shouldn't use that. Well, there might be a couple of those, Um, but there aren't any that I can say yet. They're always great. You can turn them on, set and forget, walk away and it'll be fine. But um, so smart shopping is one of those that's, if you, if you use it well, it's a fantastic tool. And then there are others at the other end of the scale, like Google writing the ad copy for you, which most of the time is a bad idea. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, interesting. You've just uh, answered one of my questions. I was going to ask you for maybe an example of maybe a smart feature that you are less cautious about and you're more trusting of. And then one Uh, perhaps you would say, oh, definitely do not use this or at least give it some heavy consideration first. So so I'll I'll give you a a mental framework for for, for your listener to, to sort of think about. So I typically, when I teach Google Ads, I have a nice simple framework because what is advertising? It's showing the right ad to the right person at the right time. And I would add to that doing so profitably. Mm. And so the three levers that I mentioned very briefly before inside of Google Ads, same for Facebook, we've got, so picture a pyramid. And the base of that, the foundation of the pyramid is bidding. The middle layer is targeting. And then the top part is messaging. And I like to say that the robots are coming up from the bottom because the bidding, that's just a big math problem. So the robots are very, very good 
at bidding. And so examples of stuff that I like, target ROAS, target CPA bidding, it's about to go away. It was about to go through a name change, but fundamentally that the underlying tech is exactly the same. It's just a funky name change on the front end, but that's really, really good now. Two years ago, that mostly sucked. Now it's awesome. In the middle, you got targeting. So that's about to change with uh, the, the little war that's going on at the moment between Apple and Facebook and Google, the end of third-party cookies that's around the corner. So lots of changes happening there, but Google are very good at showing the right ad to the right person most of the time. The huge benefit that Google have, obviously, is keywords. Facebook doesn't have that. So lean into that on your search ads with shopping ads, showing the right ad to the right person based on what they're searching for. But it's not just about the words they use to search anymore. It's all of the other signals that surround that. And again, Google is very good at understanding who's likely to click, who's likely to buy. Then the top of our pyramid is messaging. And that's where the machine mostly sucks for now. You would have seen, I'm sure, examples of GPT-3 around the middle of last year. Twitter blew up when OpenEye brought out this machine. It's basically, it's a text predictor. All it's really doing is putting one word after another The cherry-picked examples that you saw on Twitter of that were mind-blowing. This thing was writing essays and poetry and code, and it was able to do maths. Nobody had ever taught this machine how to do maths, but if you wrote the sentence 231 plus 416 is, it would spit out the answer because it's basically taught itself how to do that because it's read everything that we've ever put online. It was kind of incredible. The even more incredible thing is we don't even know what GPT-4, GPT-5, GPT-20 might be able to do. The, the, the charts are still going up and to the right. So we expect computers to, to behave as if they're creative, might be the best way of saying it, to get better at doing that stuff in the future. But right now, the, you, you don't want the Google machine writing your persuasive copy for you. They're getting better but they're still not great at that stuff. And you certainly wouldn't want them, you know, designing your, your landing page and writing your, your headlines and writing your offer for you. So there is definitely a place still for, for persuasive copy for a good writer and someone that understands data. And well, there's so many areas that the humans still need to be involved in. But sorry, I, I'm realizing I'm rambling and you probably still have tons of questions for me. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. And <laughs> in fact, my, my next question leads on from this point about AI. You're talking about it in a way that I can tell you're so passionate and interested about this area. And so it's a nice lead into my next question, which was about Mm. what are you seeing? It could be a Google ad feature. I know it actually interesting as you were talking, you were saying that uh, I think it was at Web Savvy or as part of Agency Savvy, you were trying to build tools or solutions that were perhaps AI driven that help give marketers a greater understanding or greater intelligence for their paid advertising. Mm. So yeah, my question is um, just, is there anything that you're building or you know someone else is building or just an area of AI that links with paid advertising that you're just really curious about, interested and you just can't wait to see where it goes? Careful, Scott. We don't have another hour. Um, <laughs> I could go on for a very long time here. Um, I built a... Um, I, I think where we're going with this is AI is going to be like Lego. In other words, there's going to be these Lego blocks that you can take off the shelf and put together, but you're not going to have to go and mold the plastic. You're not going to have to go learn how to build a neural network and learn all of the maths and the code behind it. I did. I went down that road three, four years ago because I could see AI was going to be massive, but 
I did it selfishly to try and understand. I am not an AI engineer, massive disclaimer here, but I wanted to try and understand how a Google AI engineer might be thinking, how might they look at this puzzle and when they create a new solution for a piece of the puzzle, why did they do it that way? Why will it work? Why might it not work? And so on. So I did go really deep into that and learned the code and learned the maths behind it. And I'm fascinated by it. I built a a little um, thing with my daughter the other day that recognized her making shapes with her body in front of the webcam to be able to spell out YMCA and <laughs> played a little tune. Lovely. Um, completely useless, not very practical, but I want her to understand that world and, and understand how to code, even though she probably will never need to learn to code. So with that said, yes, we're building some fun things. I love playing in BigQuery, but I'm also very aware that we are not AI engineers. My dev, Charlene, she's brilliant. She can solve any problem um, and she's learning a, a ton of this stuff. We are more probably with, with clients, maybe a step or two further back than that. So more conversations about data. Where does data fit on your balance sheet? Huh? What? That's a question no one's ever asked me before. Like, mm-hmm. where, How do you value data in your business? What are you doing about data? How are you collecting more first-party data? A massive, massive thing for this year with the change that's coming with Apple and Facebook and Google and the end of cookies. So that would be a question for any business that's still listening 50 minutes in. Good on you for still being here. But I love experimenting with um, the AI tools that are out there. So my favorite at the moment is a tool called Descript. So you can drop a Loom video or a Zoom video into there or record a video in there and it will transcribe that video. Yeah, okay. I've seen tools like that before. Otter.ai does that, Mike. So what's the big deal? Well, if you've ever tried to edit a video and no doubt you or one of your teams got after this is going to be scrubbing along some sort of tool that has some sort of waveform, some wiggly line, and they're going to be scrubbing along trying to find the bit where the cat meowed or the truck went past in the background to remove that little bit of audio. With Descript, you can edit your video the same way you edit a Google Doc. So you get the transcription out, and then if you decide, oh, I don't want that line, I don't want that paragraph, you literally highlight that paragraph, hit delete, and it cuts that piece of video out, joins the two bits back together, and you barely notice the join. It is editing video by editing the words that are said in the video, or audio. It's it's a tool for podcasters too. Absolutely brilliant. Can't imagine why anybody didn't do it before, but all (laughs) wonderful tools are like that. And then I'm playing with a whole bunch of copy tools that are built on GPT-3, which is now sort of um, built by OpenAI. So they've got an API so that you can call that API and, and generate copy. You can predict copy. So tools like copysmith.ai, copy.ai, usebroker.com, been working with Sid and the team a little bit there on a tool to sort of to write Google ads based on what's on your website, based on the previous ads that you've had. Trypencil.com is a similar tool, a bit more expensive. Write Sonic. There's so many of them at the moment. It'll be very interesting to see who the leaders are that emerge from that. And they'll probably all wander off down slightly different variations of a theme. Some will be more Google ads, some will be more Facebook ads. There are some that are more blog post or content ideas. But I think for me, the, the big underlying takeaway, I know I'm trying to squeeze a lot into a short amount of time here, but the big takeaway is these are not tools that are going to replace humans yet. 
They are tools to use as idea generators to use in parallel with your existing processes. Don't expect the machine to be perfect every time. They might get there. They probably will get there, but we're not there yet. So they are tools to enhance and add to our skill set to augment us, not to replace us. I, I hate that whole narrative that Hollywood and the news media have been playing for years of, you know, oh, all the jobs are going to go, we're all going to get replaced, we're all going to get turned into paper clips by the robots when they go rogue. I don't think we need to worry about artificial intelligence. I think we need to worry about dumb humans using some of these tools. That's that's the bit that, that worries me. The tools that are getting so good that in the wrong hands, they could probably do a fair bit of damage, which is why GPT-2 a year earlier was not released. The, the guys at OpenAI Open AI, excuse me, were worried about how people would use such a powerful tool that they kind of released it in stages. Mm-hmm. And then here we are a year later, they create its big brother. It's a hundred times more powerful, but they kept it hidden and then put an, uh, an API on the front of it so that they could still manage to control what people were able to do with the model, which is really, really smart and it will be it will be amazing to see what people create with that and other tools like it and like i say gpt4 might come out later this year google have got their own kind of version of that those tools are getting better by the day because data is their fuel and we're all that this is no shortage of data we're all creating more and more of it every hour yeah, there's a great quote from what you've just said, which you're going to probably mm-hmm. see us promote, which is, don't worry about artificial intelligence, worry about dumb humans. And I just <laughs> love that. As, that's a great way to frame that. I think that's really funny. Um, and I mean, I'm so glad that someone's mentioned, I mean, you, you reeled off so many great tools and things that are being experimented with that lend themselves to paid advertising and just advertising mm-hmm. and marketing more generally there. But um, I'm really glad someone raised copysmith.ai and Right, Sonic as well, because those are two tools that I've been using over this last year, just experimenting with. I don't use them on a a day-to-day. But what's impressed me so much over this last year is that, you know, I used some of those early stage tools maybe three years ago when you mentioned it was maybe GPT-2 or something. And, you know, I kind of lost interest. It wasn't, I couldn't Mm. couldn't really see where it was going. It was a bit lousy, but I've been really impressed with those two tools that I've just mentioned there. And it does feel like we're on the cusp of, like you said, now being able to use this technology to enhance what we do. And I think about in those two, you know, copywriting tools in particular, I think about the paid media marketers out there who are really good structural practitioners or bidding practitioners. They understand the math side, but perhaps aren't on the so good on the creative side. Well, you don't have to lend that creativity entirely to AI, but it can help spark and help guide your creativity a little bit more. And so that's where I think there's a place for those tools. Exactly. Yeah, it, it is. It's, Give me five different ways I might choose to start this blog post or this article and change the settings a little bit or it's it's priming. I don't know if you are old enough to remember, I know I am, of back in the day when Google was new, there was an art to how you searched for something because like the words that you put in massively changed the results that came out. These days, obviously, Google is a mind reader. It almost knows what you're going to type before you type it. Mm. You can basically just type three words of the thing you're thinking about and Google gives you the right answer every bloody time. That wasn't the case 20 years ago um, when we were starting to use Google. This kind of feels the same way. I think that the posh technical term for it is priming. And I think there will become this art form 
maybe it's something that you know, my daughter uses. It's how do you prime the machine? How do you give it the right examples? How do you lead it down the start of the right path for the machine to then deliver the stuff that you want it to, the, the really, really good stuff? Because little tweaks at the beginning can lead to vastly different outputs, certainly at the moment mm-hmm. with GPT-3. And oh, my brain braces then of, of where do we head to from there? How might this change search? If we could really, if, if I can't say Siri's name too loudly, but Siri's shit, right? Um, Google Assist is much, much better. But if it really could understand the intent behind that sentence, if you didn't have to change what you were saying to try and say it in a way that you thought was going to deliver a good answer, if you could just really, if it really was conversational language and then the follow-up question and then the follow-up question, that would be amazing. How might that change the world of search? How might that change search engines? How might that change how we create content? Because we might be heading for a world where nobody actually gets to your website anymore. You know, they go into Google, they ask a question, Google gives them the answer. They don't need to come to your website. This idea of zero click searches, which is not my area of expertise at all. I know enough about SEO to be dangerous. So take that with a last large pinch of salt. But I do find it fascinating that as computers get better at this whole idea of language, and again, we're talking here in English. So again, we are privileged because the AI's really good in English, but friends in other countries tell me that it's Mm. awful because there just isn't enough data. The data set isn't big enough, or maybe the engineers haven't invested enough into that language because it's ultimately because there's not enough money in it for them. So the very fact that we get to do this in English is a huge advantage for us. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a slew of amazing tools and yeah, they're getting better all the time. It's, it's a fun time to be playing with this stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and I know we, we, we've reached uh, just over our time. Are you okay to carry on just for a moment? I have one more question. Of course, close. of course. Perfect. So I just wanted to ask, we're talking a lot about AI here and a lot about our curiosity as marketers and where we think, yeah, where we think and what we're interested in and what's going to happen in the future and paying attention to those trends from our place of curiosity. I'm really interested to know whether from what you see, the marketer's curiosity and what they're looking at in terms of trends in the industry match what business owners are curious about. So do you think business owners have these same questions about AI as as in-depth, or are they focused on other trends that we haven't discussed mm. today? That's a really good question. I think the gap has closed. It used to be that, you know, you talk to a business owner and it's just they've got revenue, profit, talk about numbers that matter, whereas marketing managers would be more wanting to talk about the tool and the ins and outs and the nuance of it. I think that gap's closed a bit more so from marketing managers wanting to talk about outcomes more and revenue and profit. Mm. Maybe again, that's like sort of growing sophistication of their KPIs are changing. They're being held to account. I think every marketing manager is being asked every year to do more with less. And so they have to be more focused on the outcomes. I certainly see that trend happening with marketing managers that we speak to where, again, it's more of a forward conversation, talking about the predictive side of things. What might happen if we do this or if we tried this and it's what's going to happen in the future rather than looking back at the historical 
results. There's so much interesting advice that you shared today. It's been a really interesting episode. I could tell that we could carry on this conversation for another <laughs> two hours about different areas of you know, uh, the future and trends in marketing and particularly trends in AI. But um, yeah, actually, if people want to extend this conversation and reach out to you, learn more about Web Savvy, Agency Savvy, tell them where to find you. Um, well, if you want um, some training for free, I mentioned that I love making sure that people have the fundamentals down before everything else. So we've actually just put my entire Google Ads Fundamentals course, which we used to sell online for free. So that's gafcourse.com stands for Google Ads Fundamentals, but gafcourse.com. That's a great place to start. So it's about 40 lessons there. You can get it in video format, audio or written, whatever floats your boat. That's probably the best place to start if you are running Google Ads and you'd like me or one of my team to have a peek at what you're doing and see if things can be done better than websavvy.com.au because we're down here in Australia. So websavvy.com.au is the place to find us. Uh, and there's a, a form on there. If you've got questions for me, please uh, get in touch, throw your details in that form, and I will do my best to give you an answer if I possibly can. Brilliant. Uh, listeners, you can find all of those links and anything else that we've discussed today in the show notes or via our website, sitevisibility.co.uk. But now, Mike, I'll just say thanks a lot for your time. This has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and a lot of fun chatting to you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market